Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have an amazing conversation to share with you. I just spoke with a man named Marcus Whitney. Marcus is an entrepreneur and a recent author. His brand new book out called Create and Orchestrate, The Path to Claiming Your Creative Power from an Unlikely Entrepreneur. He has quite a story to tell and some pretty remarkable achievements under his belt that uh, you know you wouldn't necessarily expect given his uh, background. And uh, I had a great time talking to Marcus, a lot of uh, interesting value to share, and I'm sure that you're going to love it too. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Marcus Whitney. Hey, Marcus, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Hey, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So for the audience out there who's maybe not familiar with your work just yet, would you mind sharing in your own words uh, what you do and, and sort of how you got to this place? Sure. Uh, my name is Marcus Whitney. I'm based in Nashville, Tennessee. Been here for about 20 years, and I am an entrepreneur. Um, over the last five years, which are most of the things I'm still doing, uh, my ventures have been in healthcare venture capital. Um, so Jumpstart Health Investors is the most active healthcare innovation fund in the country. Um, I was a co-founder and minority owner of Nashville Soccer Club, which is uh, Nashville's brand new major league soccer team. Um, and I also create a bunch of content online, all sort of around my name, Marcus Whitney. So if you were to Google that or look on any of the socials, that's how you'd find me. And I have a podcast and a daily live streaming show. Um, and most of what I talk about is around entrepreneurship. When did you first sort of catch the entrepreneurial bug? I caught it multiple times and uh, it finally stuck in 2009. So uh, I tried before then um, a couple of times and just didn't have the skills didn't have the credibility, quite frankly, um, and uh, I just wasn't ready. Also, didn't have the maturity. So, uh, I think I've had the bug for a long time, but when it really stuck was 2000, uh, 2009. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people who end up becoming entrepreneurs might have showed signs early on in life uh, and you know, were never able to sort of fully flesh them out until the time became right. For you in 2009, what was that event? Well, um, I, I had left a, uh, a company where I'd been for four years in 2007 called Emma. Uh, it's an email marketing company. I was the head of technology there. And I started the process of, of running uh, a business. And I, I really was doing well. It was an agency around software development. And we were generating more than a million dollars in revenue. And I'd gotten up to about nine or 10 people. And then in 2009, um, I made a fatal mistake in that business and had one client who just made up way too much of my revenue and they sort of sucked me in and I became the CTO of that company. It was a venture back company. I became the CTO of that company, had to move my team in as a department of that company. And as a result of that, I, 
I lost, I actually lost my entrepreneurship status um, and had to start side hustling again. But that was when I really sort of understood that entrepreneurship was part art, but certainly science. And there were rules to it uh, in order to do it sustainably and do it well. And so that was, that was really the kickoff. It was, it was that final failed attempt that set me on the path for all the things that I'm doing today. It's interesting that, that you had a few sort of uh, lead ups to that. Was there anything else that led to sort of the, sort of the breakout there in 2009, any of your previous experience or uh, situations that may have occurred that, that led you to that point? Generally speaking, um, I am a person who does not do well with office politics. And so I've always struggled in other people's work environments. Um, and I also have strong opinions. This may be directly related to the office politics piece. I have strong opinions <laughs> on, on, uh, how companies should operate directionally. Um, or at least I should say back then before I was, a boss for any significant period of time, as an employee, I had strong opinions uh, on those things. And so that would always kind of push me to to wanna do my own thing. You know, I'm, I've now been uh, in the seat of doing my own thing for more than 10 years and uh, I have far fewer opinions on how other people run their businesses now that I understand just how difficult it can be. Um, I have far more respect for my previous bosses, but I still wouldn't wanna be uh, an employee at anyone else's company. I think. Fundamentally, my personality is is uh, steeped in in being creative, um, a little bit of rebelliousness, but not like the negative kind. More like always wanting to um, improve things and make things better, and if anything, rebelling against the status quo. And so that those those are just always been themes there for me. I've also always had a bit of an ambitious edge, and I think my personality uh, lended very well to me ultimately becoming an entrepreneur. Got it. I'm curious because there's something that we both have in common, which is not taking the college route, uh, you know, and then ultimately ending up in entrepreneurship. I'm curious if, you know, the same characteristics that you're describing now, you know, sort of going your own way, having that ambitious edge, sort of what that was like for you to experience those feelings while, you know, in those sort of college ages. And the reason why I ask that is because I feel that there's a lot of young people that are sort of guided into college as like a default pathway these days. And it's always interesting for me to hear how people were thinking around that time who ended up, you know, sort of breaking away from that system. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, if, if it's a default pathway now, it, it, it's really much more of the only pathway back when I went to school. So um, I entered school 1993. That was the year that the web browser happened. So the internet was not a thing. You know, when you think about most of the new options um, that don't involve going to college, many of them, many of them, one way or another, are connected to the internet. Um, you know, when I was going to college, that was not the case, and so we were dealing with an even older version of the economy where college was not the default, but in many cases seen as like the only path for you to actually uh, have upward mobility financially. So uh, when I got there, I was very much into creativity. I was into making music. And, and quite frankly, I was also not mature enough to do well in that environment. So I ended up dropping out uh, after two years at, at the University of Virginia. And the way that things have played out, I just never had the time to go back, quite frankly. Um, 
I've always just been in the process of doing something and that something was always more important than going back and finishing my degree. Um, but I do, but to, to sort of get back to your original point, yes, I, I've believed that many of the personality traits that would lead someone to be a great entrepreneur are also things that might make someone uh, really challenged in a college environment uh, because in a college environment, you're spending so much time being talked at and, um, you know, not that much time sort of finding out how things work on your own. Um, there is, there's a, you know, look, there's a lot of indoctrination that that's going on in, in, in formalized education. That's, you know, for better or worse, that's, that's largely the rule of that world. So if you're the kind of person who likes to create, who likes to learn on your own, likes to figure things out, then, you know, higher education as it, as it exists today and has existed for a long time can be really difficult for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to commend you for, for dropping out at a time where the internet was not as abundant because I think it's a lot different decision these days when we have so much information at our fingertips compared to, you know, what you would have had access to, uh, you know, just, you know, a few years ago. Yeah, Makes for sure. Uh, many of the things that I, that I did that are now um, common, I did in a time where either the internet wasn't a thing or it wasn't very robust. So um, when I moved to Nashville as a college dropout, I was waiting tables and uh, I had a, had a young family. Uh, I was me, my, my wife, now my ex-wife, um, my one-year-old kid, and then my, my wife at the time was pregnant. So I had this small family, I'm a college dropout, I'm waiting tables and we're living in a week to week motel and uh, that wasn't gonna work. And I'm in this new town, I just moved to Nashville, I didn't know anybody. So I just sort of figured that the, the one thing I could do without a degree that might work would be uh, teach myself how to code, um, computer programming. So at that time, Amazon hadn't yet killed all the bookstores. So you could still go to a Borders or a Barnes and Nobles and uh, go buy these big thick computer books and you know just take them home and go through all the examples. And so I did that for eight months, also going to free user groups uh, at this building here in, in Nashville called Cummins Station, which was where most of the technology companies were. And through that process, I learned enough to get hired as a junior developer at a company called HealthStream. Um, but you know, back then they didn't have Code Academy or they didn't have these 12 to, to 16 or 18 week boot camps. You know, all the things that are in place now to make coding like a trade that you can pick up um, without having to go to college, those things weren't in place then. But there was this, there was at least this idea that had permeated culture that you could get a job as a programmer without a college degree. Uh, had that idea not permeated, you know, popular culture, I wouldn't have been able to, you know, even know that that was an angle I could take. Yeah. It sounds like you caught the wave at just the right time. There's always, you know, it seems throughout history, anytime there's sort of a new technology on the horizon, all of a sudden the credentials required to sort of uh, enter that space don't matter as much because it's sort of an up and coming thing and people are just looking for talent. So if you can self-educate and uh, become talented in that area, then you know there's no reason to not be of value to whoever is working with that skill set. That's exactly right. Um, I, I, I love the way you said it. When there's a new emerging, uh, you know, industry or or, or skill set in demand, uh, there's no infrastructure for higher education to sort of capitalize on, right? So um, it's basically like, hey, this thing is working. It's creating real value in the economy. We need more of it, and so we kind of drop a lot of these artificial 
requirements, right? And, and I think it's interesting. We're starting to finally see that breaking down more broadly. Uh, you know, I just saw totally. it about government uh, starting to focus more on skills than on college degrees. Um, so we're, we're getting there, but, you know, we're, still, we're definitely still not there. Yeah, not 100% there. One story I love, though, is uh, Thomas Edison actually started his career as a young boy. Uh, he was able to like decode Morse code uh, just by listening to it as opposed to like transcribing it. He became super talented in the ability to like transcribe messages from Morse code uh, as, you know, like a nine-year-old or something like that. So he was able to be of tremendous value to business people in, you know, his area because of how quickly he could perform this task that, you know, other people had taken formal training to, but because, you know, this whole new language of Morse code and, and the telegraph and transmitting these messages was such an emerging new thing, it allowed, you know, people like Edison to sort of uh, show their skill set and get recognized for it, you know, same way that you're able to, you know, learn code, learn to code uh, in a time where it's like, hey, you know, this is a new thing. There, there's not solid certifications around it. And, uh, you know, it's, you can just build value for somebody with, with an emerging, uh, you know, language or technology or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And that's, that's, that, that's how I was able to sort of break in and change the trajectory of what, uh, my life became. Love it, man. Let me ask you what, why Nashville? Why'd you move to Nashville? Yeah. So there's not a good reason for that. Unfortunately, my, <laughs> my, my, my ex-wife went to high school in Nashville and her best friend was here. So, uh, we were in Atlanta prior to that and just decided that, that, uh, it wasn't necessarily going to be the ideal place to raise our family, um, from a community perspective, you know, we just didn't know anybody there, honestly. And, uh, you know, at least she had some roots in Nashville. It was only four hours away. So, you know, I was young, I was 24. We just, you know, packed up, uh, everything in the car and drove up sight unseen for me. I'd never spent a day in Nashville, never even really thought about it. That's pretty amazing. Given, uh, you know, where you're at today, it sounds like you must be deeply embedded in the, in the culture over there. It's, it's crazy, but you know, credit due to the city. The city is a very, um, uh, a very collaborative place and a place that, you know, if you decide that you really want to make this your home and you want to champion this place, um, but you're willing to also kind of pay your dues and learn how the city works, then uh, you can do great here. As so many people who have moved here have made this a home and have uh, had, you know, tremendous success and, and great st standing as uh, civic leaders um, that, weren't, that are not from here. I mean, uh, a ton of people that I'm certainly not the only one. That's awesome. Sounds like an amazing place. I have not visited, but uh, I, I hear nothing but good things. Yeah, put, put it on your list for when, uh, you know, all this, these travel bans and so forth are, uh, are over. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. So I'm very curious about how you ended up in the healthcare industry at all. And, you know, not just, you know, one company, but to get into the venture capital side of things. Yeah, so th this kind of ties back to 2009 and why 2009 is the year when everything started to come together for me. So uh, I lost my, my uh, software development agency having to sort of fold into another company. But uh, I met my current business partner then, uh, Vic Gatto. He was a venture capitalist for a different firm uh, uh, at the time, but he was starting to experiment with uh, ways that venture capital could be more innovative, uh, the practice of it could be more innovative. And so uh, he included me and a group of 20 other people 
who we all would get together and have pizza and just talk about how venture capital could be different, how it could change. Eventually, that evolved into a Shark Tank-like environment, um, and it was the very first version of uh, our seed seed fund business today called Jumpstart Foundry. Uh, we were not focused on healthcare as a group. We were just uh, a group of folks who came together once a month and would listen to some pitches and and write a check. And uh, over time, that group of 20 kind of dwindled down to just Vic and myself. Um, I was spending a lot of time nights and weekends on it. I was really passionate about getting an education, a real world edu- education in venture capital. And I knew that the opportunity that you know he'd given me was unique. Um, and so I just really leaned into it. And uh, we, we kept doing Jumpstart Foundry as a shark tank. Then we evolved it into an accelerator. We did that until 2014. And at that point, we were one of the top accelerators in the country, but also realized that the accelerator model and industry was getting really saturated and was going to be very hard to be successful, that we would need to make it more mature. So we sat down and said, hey, do we want to like, you know, close up shop or do we want to keep going uh, and doing this together? When we decided we wanted to keep going, we knew we had to make some changes. So the first thing was we can't be an accelerator anymore. We have to be a real fund and write bigger checks. The second thing was, you know, when we started in 2009, 2010, we were one of the first 100 accelerators in the country. By 2014, there were over 3,000 in the country. So we were not going to be able to uh, you know, stand out as a tech accelerator. We needed to have something that was special, that was different. And for us, we had to look within our own environment. What in Nashville um, stands out? There are really two things, two industries in Nashville that stand out. One is music. Most people know that country music industry is uh, kind of based in Nashville. Uh, but the second, which most people don't know, is healthcare. Um, and healthcare is actually the largest industry in Nashville. Uh, in, the, in the healthcare industry broadly, there are sort of three big areas. There's pharmaceutical, and that's you know, largely based in the Northeast. Um, there's the insurance companies, and that's in Connecticut and then also Minneapolis. Um, and then there's the healthcare services, which means your hospitals, your large physician groups, your behavioral health centers, your ambulatory surgical centers. And the hub of those in the United States is Nashville. Not all of them are based out of here, but a very, very large percentage um, of them are based in Nashville, outsized number one, the leader in the country. So, uh, so we knew that. We knew we had access to an industry cluster that had wealth, that had buying power, that had expertise, and that would be very, very valuable for early stage companies uh, that we could leverage. And so 2014, we decided to go in full time, make Jumpstart Foundry a seed stage fund in the healthcare space. And I did not know anything about healthcare when I started <laughs> that. Um, and so it was another sort of real world trial by fire uh, education opportunity. So, so why healthcare if you had no uh, previous experience in it, primarily because you were located in Nashville? Yeah, it, it, was, it, it was a market decision. You know, it was Got not it. a decision predicated on my skills. It was a decision predicated on the strength of the market opportunity. Um, turned out to be, because, you know, the thing is, I can learn uh, healthcare. That's, that's something that can happen. Uh, I can't make a market where there's not a market. So... Uh, it was much easier to just pick the market that existed and ramp up my learning curve than try to make Nashville a tech hub, which it's not. And, uh, you know, it may never be, uh, you know, hopefully one day it, it will rival some of the other great tech cities in the country. But today we don't have enough of the raw material to, to be truly competitive as a tech city. 
Got it. Okay. That's interesting. And so when you started that, what, how many other healthcare focused venture capital firms were there? Um, so there were a lot of healthcare venture firms in Nashville. Um, Nashville is not just the home to healthcare services. It's also a big home to healthcare venture capital. So lots of strong VCs here, <clears throat> but there were, they were all investing in later stage companies. So where we differentiated, where we were investing in very early stage companies, these companies would be considered way too risky uh, for many of the venture firms that were already in existence. And so they kind of looked at it like that we were playing in a part of the industry they didn't want to have anything to do with, um, too much risk. And we looked at that as we were going to get early access to deals before they could see them. And over time, if we were successful, we would continue to grow the amount of money we were managing and we would start to buy into the later stage deals anyway. Got it. Very interesting. And were there a few or a handful of companies that sort of helped build traction for you guys or how did that start? How did the growth begin? Uh, no, all hustle. Um, all no, hustle. Love it. Yeah. Nope. Nobody. Um, you know, there, there's certainly no company that could say, uh, I mean, even today that, that could say, yeah, you know, they put their arm around us and, you know, made it work. We, we have, you know, fought very hard to develop hard earned relationships with um, some important people and different companies. But even that doesn't, you know, guarantee us anything. You know, what, what has been, what has been and continues to be important is the ability to raise money, the ability to find the best companies to invest in, the ability to help those companies be even better in their execution. Um, and then the, the luck of the market kind of playing in their favor. There's always a bit of luck in this stuff. So, um, you know, that those have been the hallmarks of any success that we've had. Um, nobody has like, you know, sponsored us as a, as a company. Got it. Wow. Well, that's incredible. I like, you know, I commend the hustle for sure. Yeah. I mean, the hustle is what you can, is what you can depend on. Right. Um, the, the other stuff is nice. It's great. It's, you know, it's, it's awesome if somebody will take care of you, <laughs> but in entrepreneurship, you know, usually that comes at a cost anyway. So, you know, you learn over time, it's best to just kind of depend on yourself and your hustle. You know, your freedom's not free. And, um, you know, your when I say freedom, I mean, your ability to continue to control your destiny as an entrepreneur. And also that's, that's you as an individual, but also your company. So, um, that requires hustle. You know what I mean? You have, you have to, you have to work hard, you, sufficiently hard. I mean, not work, work yourself into the ground, but you, there is a threshold of like how much you have to work in order for the volume of effort to, um, to, to put you in a position to be successful and to, and mo most importantly, to put you in a position to be independently successful. Absolutely. Yeah. It's that showing up every single day, being a professional kind of attitude and putting in the work above and beyond, uh, you know, what the competitors are doing that really makes the difference over time and just gives you that opportunity to succeed. I'm curious with, you know, when, when you're looking at picking companies, you know, of course you're really picking the founders, you're picking the people that comprise the company. How do you, or what kind of things do you look for in those founders? Um, so it, you know, there's, there's no monolith of, of, you know, what a great founder looks like. Um, I, I would say they have to be passionate. They have to be knowledgeable about, 
about the area that they're trying to go into. If they have huge blind spots, it's a problem. It's problematic. Um, you know, I think that they, they have to be coachable because they have to, they have to have enough self-awareness to know what they don't know. Um, they will continue to grow, but they're not perfect. If they were, they wouldn't need you. Um, and they, they have to be, you know, willing, willing to work really hard and, and, and have, have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, but, but utilize that chip in the right way. You know, don't, don't use it in a, um, negative is not really the word I want to use here, but you know, it's more like don't, don't, don't sabotage yourself because you're, because you're angry, right? Like use that, use that as fuel to, to get you to work harder, to make your product better, to make your execution sharper. Sure. Sure. I can see that. Um, on top of just like the, the characteristics of the people that you're working with, are there other, you know, when you're assessing the value of these, you know, of these businesses, I think it's a, like, I can imagine if I was in your shoes, I'd have a situation where, you know, you're always sort of, uh, biased towards hoping that it's going to succeed, especially if you've made an investment. How do you handle your own internal biases when making these decisions to prevent those sort of uh, delusions that might occur? Well, there is no 100% way to do that. But uh, you are highlighting one of the biggest problems in venture capital, which is bias, so, you know, bias and selection. Uh, how we have approached it to date is our process on the front end is largely data driven. So we do not... Um, uh, we don't spend a lot of time reading PowerPoint decks. We get we get hundreds of companies applying for funding every year, and uh, we force them to kind of go through our own not kind of we force them to go through our own data collection process, and we use that data collection process similar to a loan application where there is scoring uh, of of the data. And so before we ever talk to the company, we've collected their data and we've scored it similar to like a credit score, FICO score, um, and then force ranked all of the applications by that score. So this, this happens before we know exactly what kind of product it is, exactly where the founder is, who the founder knows, any of those kinds of things. Once we've done that, then we kind of, you know, shift out all the super low ranking scores, then it does get into more of a human process. And the truth is, you know, you, you, you try to keep a diverse group of people around the table through throughout the selection process to help you to root out the bias, but the bias always gets in. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's something you have to constantly kind of work on. I can imagine I, it's gotta be, you know, one of the hardest things to combat just being a human that. You're, you're bound to sort of trick yourself and fall for those things. I, I would love to see the values that you ascribe to different questions on that sheet and how you qualify people. I'm sure uh, there's a lot of interesting questions there. Do you have any favorite questions that you use to sort of uh, categorize or to uh, you know pull value out to determine if someone's going to be qualified for your uh, you know for your firm? Uh, yeah, I need to be careful because, you know, <laughs> of course. this is pretty proprietary. Um, but you know, some of the things that we, that are, I, I think straightforward and, 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 uh, just fine for normal consumption. Um, you know, we want to know how, how the founders met and how long they've known each other. Right. So, uh, we always prefer to have multiple founders as opposed to a single founder. Um, just because the kind of companies we invest in usually have too much work for one person to do. 
So, you know, it doesn't mean it's impossible. There are those cases where a single founder can do it. And we have invested in single founders and they've done very well. So um, our, our first exit was, was from a single founder. So, but, you know, when there are co-founders, um, we want to know, okay, how, how did you meet and how long have you all been working together? Because, you know, it's like any other kind of relationship, right? Um, if, uh, if they've only known each other for a year or two, they really haven't been through enough together and uh, a business is hard, you're eventually going to have really hard stuff happen to you. And so, um, you know, we, that's one of those questions uh, that we're, we're always very interested in the, in the response to. Yeah, it's, it's so true. It's like business partners really, you know, it's like a very complicated uh, sort of marriage arrangement. So, you know, if there, if there's a limited uh, time limit, it's just like looking at newlyweds and guessing their, uh, you know, their odds of divorce. That's so exactly uh, right. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, I mean, all right, let's say you, you've picked some people, you've picked a team, you've picked a company. Where do you go from there? Do you, what, what's your, what's the coaching like? What's the building process like? Uh, how, how do you address the, you know, sort of tackling the, the initiatives, what they need to do? Uh, where, where's your process begin from there? Well, I, I think the, the most important thing is to say uh, that it is, in fact, um, a process. And so the process has a decision tree to it, right? So one of the important things is that we invest in 20 companies a year out of our seed fund. And so we first need to know what category do they fall in? Are they a health IT company? Are they a tech-enabled services company? Are they a health and wellness consumer-based company? Based on that question, they will go down a different path, right? Um, because one path is going to require that we start the process of really digging into their, uh, their business model, their pricing, understanding their reimbursement strategy, um, and also you know, making sure that we're leveraging our network and our connections to get them starting to network into uh, potential buyers that they could work with. If it's a different path, then it could be about us looking at their acquisition cost and looking at, you know, what they're doing from an ad marketing strategy or, or you know, do they need to have their product in different retailers? And are there any retailers that we could work, work with, uh, work with them to, to develop a relationship with? So it, it's, you know, it's a, it is a process. And every year, as we have more experiences under our belt, we develop and improve the process itself. Um, you want it to be as much of an engine as it possibly can. Got it. Got it. Okay. So basically determining what type of business they have is the, is the entry point. And then do you have a framework for like setting targets and, and, you know, working towards those targets and how do you sort of, uh, yeah, how do, how do you help keep businesses uh, focused on their commitments and what they need to achieve? We do. Uh, we have a we have a pretty serious gate process. Um, again, we're get, we're getting a little bit into, into our proprietary <laughs> stuff, but but I mean, I can answer the question to say yes. We have gates um, that you know, as companies pass through, the way that we engage with them and the things that we will do for them and on their behalf change. Um, all the way up to writing a second check, right? You know what I mean? Um, and we're really clear with them on the way in what those things are, what they look like and where they currently sit. So it's, um, you know, we just find that that clarity and communication is sort of the kindest way to, um, to, to be an investor for, for an entrepreneur. 
And the more that you can structure that, that, that clear communication, the better. And so we've spent, I would say that that's been a big innovation over the last two years is really defining those, those gates and those, those stages that companies are in and helping them to really understand where they are and when they're in that stage, what their, what their primary activity should be. It's a really interesting thing to try to do because it's, it's like looking at, uh, you know, like a, you know, like a child growing up and trying to determine what stage of development they're in, you know, it's, right. uh, except we, you know, with a company, it's, it's just a virtual thing. It's not something that necessarily has, uh, as many physical features that would, that would give away sort of where they're at, at that moment. So, uh, I can imagine a lot of time and energy must go into trying to define those stages and determining what's, what's needed from there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, look, it's a, it's a process to develop the process. Right. And totally. I think, you know, you, you can do it just fine if you can accept that it's definitely not going to be perfect and you're going to make mistakes every single time. You know what I mean? Like as long as you're okay with the, the, uh, the inevitability of imperfection, then you can, you can do it and you can go about your life. If you're, if you're trying to sort of build the perfect machine, uh, in a, in a world where you can't control for uncertainty, you can't manage every single risk. Um, you know, you're, you're just setting yourself up for, sadness for sure yeah <laughs> expectations are key um for for the maybe the entrepreneurs out there that you've declined have you ever accepted them after the fact uh later yeah. On? yeah oh for sure for sure yeah, yeah yeah we've um you know because it's a relationship right so when when they when they apply sometimes they're like six months too early and you know it's not a no it's a not right now Right. So, um, what we want to do for those companies, I mean, sometimes it is a no, right? Sometimes it's a definite solid. No. Yeah. Sometimes it's a solid. No, but there are many cases where it's a not right now. And now you, now you're just talking about timing, right? It's like the right person, definitely the right idea. And they're making good traction. They're just, they're just six to nine months too early for you. And, and, you know, you want them to, to come back next year. So, um, you know, in those cases, you, you offer them that feedback, you, you, you offer to help in, in any way you can without actually having made the investment, um, you know, to kind of demonstrate your, your seriousness. Uh, and you, and you encourage them to apply again, you know, you say, look, you know, we, we, we loved what you presented. It's just, it's not the right stage for us. We, we, we don't come in at this stage and, uh, you know, but we know we, you know, we, it looks like you're definitely going to be there in this amount of time. So we really want you to reapply. And then, you know, in those cases, we've definitely um, made those investments and they've turned out to be great companies, you know? So uh, that's, that's part of how this whole thing works is these are all relationships with people. You never know where someone's going to be after the fact, you know, we've had people who've applied and, you know, their company didn't work, but then they go on to be a vice president at a company we really want to have a relationship with, with. So it's just really important to, um, you know, to, to understand you're dealing with people and, you know, be, 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 be kind and thoughtful wherever you can. It's just, it's just kind of important. For sure. Is, is there any advice that you find particularly effective when you're addressing people in that situation where maybe it's not the right time or place, but you're trying to keep them oriented to get to the right time and place, uh, maybe the right stage of their business? Is there any advice you find particularly has been effective? I, you know, I, I just, I just think being straight up and honest, um, and not trying to beat around the bush in any way, shape or form, just being as clear as you possibly can, right? As clear as you possibly can. Um, 
and and as they as they ask questions, try to answer them. You know, if you can, if you're able to answer the questions, try to answer them. Um, that's it, just just clarity and being straightforward. Um, you know, early in my career, I, I used to try to like manipulate situations, <laughs> and, you know, and try to like figure out like the you know the best thing to say. And it's like a that's so much mental gymnastics. Um, that like you could be spending that, that energy, that mental energy on so many better things and B it's never helpful. Like the only thing that's helpful is the truth. You know what I mean? Now, now how you communicate the truth, you know, yeah, you need to be kind and, and sort of, you know, have enough emotional intelligence to know how somebody might receive what you're saying and, and try to frame it up correctly. But at the end of the day, like you say the truth, you know, say, say the thing that needs to be said. Yeah. And I, I would emphasize that because it's, it's a lot harder than it sounds. You know, a lot of people go, oh, yeah, I just speak the truth. Sure. But when you're talking to someone who, you know, this company is their baby, it's, it's, it could be a part of their identity, you know, the way that you have to go about talking about it and, you know, criticizing it or, or, you know, giving them, you know, a dose of reality could be a lot harder than, than it sounds uh, when you just say like, yeah, just speak the truth. You know, it could be a, a much more delicate situation at times. Yeah, for, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, you learn over time, right? I mean, uh, one of the things that, that I wrote in my book is just about leadership not uh, requiring experience. And, and the, the reason for that is, is that Leadership is about taking people into uncharted territory often, not all the time, but often. And, you know, you're not always going to have experience in leadership. And so you have to know part of leadership is going to be failing, is going to be, you know, um, coming up short. But you, you do the best you can. So over many, many years of communicating and telling the truth to people, guess what? You'll get better at it right? You know, you'll get better at the tone, the demeanor, um, you know, how you make people feel when you say what you say, you know, because a lot of that can be controlled through body language. Um, you will get better over time if you care enough about it to get better over time. You're not going to be perfect at it right away, but right away, what you need to do is tell the truth. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so it's like, don't wait for all the finesse to develop to do the right thing the first time. I think that's great advice. I love that. And I'm glad that you brought up your book because that was sort of where I was going next, which I'm, I'm curious, where did the seeds of this book, when, when were they originally planted? When did you start uh, cultivating these ideas? And when did you realize that, you know, you had to shape this into something uh, real and solid? Uh, the very first seed was planted when I did a, a TEDx talk uh, here in Nashville in 2014. And, uh, a TEDx talk will challenge you to really uh, hone an idea to a solid place, um, you know, because it's it's got the TED brand attached to it, right? I mean, I know it's TEDx, but it's still in, a, in that same family. And there have been TEDx talks that have been elevated to the hundreds of millions of views. So, you know, you, you want to spend that 18 minutes delivering the highest quality thing you can at that point in your life. And uh, I was, when I went into it and I signed up for it, I knew that intellectually, but then the actual process was, was really, really daunting. And it forced me to kind of turn myself inside out. Um, 
And the only thing I knew well enough to talk about, quite frankly, was myself. So I, I, I kind of went back uh, at that time over the 15 years I had been in Nashville and my journey up until that point. And uh, so this, this was, you know, the same year that I decided to go all, all in full time on Jumpstart Foundry. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just a process of trying to say, okay, over these last 15 years, I've had some successes. I've, you know, I've learned some things. I've made some money. But, you know, what, what essential nugget could I learn from all that? Like, like, or, or could I teach somebody else? What, what philosophies have I developed? And so I came up with, with this, this basic philosophy, uh, you know, around hustling that was one to believe two to partner up and three to orchestrate. And I did this talk and I was just, just, you know, I spent 40 hours working on it. I was totally terrified when I came off stage and, had a standing ovation and, you know, kind of came back out for, for, uh, for a second, uh, you know, round of applause, but I was still kind of like, you know, I was still like, Oh my God, Oh my God. Uh, you know, I can't believe I just did that. I was probably terrible. And after, after the event, I was out in the hallway with people and this teenage girl walked up to me and she said, Marcus, I just want you to know, um, I'm going to write those words on my ceiling. And every day when I wake up, they're going to be the first thing that I see. Like, and that way more than the applause, because I can trick myself into thinking they were just being nice to me. Sure. Um, you know what I mean? But when, yeah. that, when that girl came up and said that, that, that changed, that, that basically changed everything. Like it, it flipped me into this, oh, what I say can actually change someone's life. Um, and that's when I started really looking at myself and saying, okay, what do I have to offer the world that's greater than a company? Um, and that was how I, how I started down this path of, of eventually deciding to write the book. Wow. What, what a powerful moment. What a powerful experience. I'm sure that definitely has, you know, ripple effects that they'll go just throughout life. That's really awesome. And yeah. Book is, she has no idea what she did for me. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Okay. It's one of those moments that, you know, she's just like probably, uh, you know, riding the wave of that talk, but, uh, yeah, it's, that's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and was, your book is called create and orchestrate. So I can see that you, you know, sort of, uh, borrowed the, the, you know, the, some framework that you can see the seed growing from the TEDx talk. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it, it, it definitely is anchored in that talk. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's that talk plus the last five years of my life. So it's a, it's a solid iteration on that talk. Um, you know, there's a lot more, you know, I've, I've hit a, I've hit a solid bottom since then. Um, you know, I've, I've, uh, had more failures, you know, some higher highs, some lower lows, and, uh, I'm certainly much more mature in my understanding of how entrepreneurship works. So, uh, I'm I'm pretty excited about the book. I feel like um, I wrote the book that I wish I had back in 2007 when I first left Emma. It's like you know what book might have helped me. I can't say it would have for sure because I was you know a little bit arrogant. But um, <laughs> he, you know, if if I was willing to learn and listen from a book, what would that book have needed to say? And that's the book I tried to write. That's incredible. Uh, I mean, I definitely look forward to reading the story. And when does, uh, when does it drop for, for the audience to uh, pick up a copy? So I have no idea when this is, uh, is happening, but it is, uh, it's June 30th, which is tomorrow, the day after we're recording this, this podcast. Yeah, so by the time this comes out, this will be available 
in all places books are sold i imagine especially uh, amazon yes in all places books are sold especially amazon that's right L- let me ask you how long did it take you to you know from deciding that this needs to become a book to getting to this point where it's coming out tomorrow how long was that process for you uh five years <laughs> Amazing. this has been a really long process um so i did a kickstarter five years ago to get this project off the ground and um you know, a lot happened over the course of those five years. Uh, you know, probably the two most notable things from a business perspective would be uh, that we we launched our healthcare fund and are now the most active um, venture fund in healthcare innovation in the country. And the second would be that we uh, we launched a major league soccer team. So those stories are in the book, um, and the principles that I, I learned through those experiences are in the book. Um, but also you know, in terms of me personally, I became an author over the last five years. Um, it, it, writing a book is a hard, hard thing to do. Um, being, becoming a book author is a very, very hard thing to do. And it's the kind of thing where if you have uh, some motivation to do it and you, and you can get really excited and hopped up in the beginning, once you set out on the path, you, you start to realize, holy cow, like on your first one, it's... It's so daunting. Um, I mean, it's similar to business, right? You know, uh, you, you go into it all, uh, you know, cheery eyed and then, you know, you find there are just those days where it's, you know, it seems like an endless expanse in front of you and you've made maybe little to no progress. You know, I can imagine it's uh, totally, equally totally. as daunting. I, I mean, I wrote so many words to get to these words that are in this book. So many words. And, um, you know, it is, uh, I'm, but I'm happy with the words that are in the book and they're all my words. And, um, you know, it is a good combination of narrative and knowledge and wisdom. Um, and uh, I think it is something new, which, uh, which I think is saying something in the business book world. That's yeah, certainly. Uh, so, you know, so many business books that come out these days are, are very generic. I actually just recently had a podcast uh, episode with a guy named Joshua Lysak, uh, who is a ghostwriter and has written uh, over 50 books now, which is like, you know, after what we just said about writing books and how hard it can be, it's like a superpower. Yes. Um, and, you know, uh, we actually talked about a number of the characteristics of a good business book versus sort of a generic one and how challenging that is just because there's, you know, there's a lot out there. So you do have to truly distinguish, you know, your story and, and what makes it unique to you to make it a, a powerful, uh, you know, sort of something special for the reader. So, you know, th- there were several points um, over the last five, five years where I hit lows in this process of writing this book. Um, it was actually pretty demoralizing and where people were just saying, why don't you just get a ghostwriter? And I was just so stubborn about that. I just would not have it. I wouldn't hear it. It was just no way. I, I got so many offers from people to do it. And um, I, it is the best stubborn decision I ever made to, to not do that. Um, because to, to have gone through all that pain, if I would have to look at this book and know somebody else wrote it, like it would just totally kill me, you know, like, sure. like at least like I look at this book and I'm like, okay, I, you know, I wrote it. Yeah. It's a, I wrote it. 
it's a it's a cool thing with a book like compared to you know a business really never you know it's it's always growing or else it's dead right um you know a book is something that you can put out to the world and it's just like you know eternally there so it's such a cool thing to be able to produce this one solid product and and leave it into legacy that you have Uh, and i'm sure you know like even you you have you know two like about college age kids that you know i'm sure like you know it's like it's there available for for them as well as uh, all the people that age that could benefit from it yeah uh you know i i'm so so just for my boys if i never do anything again there's this weird feeling of like i've left them something you know that's really you know i mean it's gonna belong to the world but you know this is for them. It's, you know, it's for them as they go to, to take over the world. You know what I mean? It's like, I've left them what I know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I, I definitely, it's, it's daunting and demoralizing and super, super hard. Uh, but, but also very rewarding. And I would, you know, ask most people to just consider whether or not writing a book, uh, is something they could fit into their lives. That's awesome, man. So, so where do you see it going from here? I mean, you, you've got some, uh, you know, phenomenal accomplishments under your belt so far. Where would you like to see the next five years? You can have another book out or what do you think? <laughs> um, so it's really interesting. I'm, uh, yeah, I don't even want to think about a second book right now. <laughs> Makes you sick. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's going to, I think I'm going to still be doing some, some important work in the healthcare venture, venture capital space. I think there's so much work to do there. So I see myself continuing to be involved there. Um, you know, I think that it's hard for me to see even five years out, you know, I, I think about 2014 and there's no way you could have told me in 2014 that I would be a co-founder and minority owner of a major league soccer team. Right. So I know that, uh, things will happen. I can't even wrap my head around right now. I mean, look at 2020, right? Like nobody thought new year's day of 2020, that this would be our reality. Um, so I try not to kind of think that far out and I try to mostly think about the things that I could control uh, five years from now, which would be, you know, I want to be stronger five years from now than I am today. I want to be healthier. I want to be, um, you know, more independent and self-sufficient. Uh, I want to have better control of my time, you know, sort of those things that feel much more manageable. That's, that's kind of where I am. Yeah. I can totally agree with that way of thinking where, you know, it's like when you think five years out, you, you, you know, it's really hard to get very specific and granular about what kind of, what our world will even be. So to pick, take a step back and look at like those larger parts of our lives that are harder to quantify and just say like, yes, more, you know, more time or uh, healthier. Like I think those, that's definitely the right way of thinking there. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's the only things that I can tell you right now with certainty that I really, uh, you know, can, can see myself continuing to work on now, you know, it's still, there's some things in there that I can't control, but to the degree that I can control them, I'm, I'm really going to try to be 
you know, an even better version of myself five years from now than I, than I am today. Love it, man. Love it. What advice do you have for anyone out there who, who might be listening to this and, and is interested in, um, you know, basically trying to get started down a similar path. Maybe, maybe they're sort of in a position that your, your son's ages are, you know, that early college age, where would you, where would you direct them or where would you, uh, you know, point their attention? Yeah. It, the, the universal, uh, you know, guidance is believe in yourself. It's the foundation of everything. Um, you are what you think. And, um, you have to think that you can achieve things in order for the achievement to even be possible. It is a prerequisite. So um, believe in yourself, you know, kind of when we go beyond that, I, I think, you know, there's a, there's a need to make sure you actually have developed a skill, like one viable skill um, that you can always, I hate to say fall back on, because it could be that this is what you sort of lean into the world with. Um, but you need a viable skill that's, that's not quote unquote entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you need something that people will pay you for. And, and then from there, you know, you, you, you have some, some latitude to start to take some risks. Love it, man. Love it. Um, well for everyone listening out there, you know, I definitely recommend the book. You, you do have a phenomenal story. Uh, I'm excited to get my hands on it and read through it myself. Like, again, it's called create and orchestrate the path to claiming your creative power from an unlikely entrepreneur. Love it, man. I'm, I'm really excited for you and excited to see what these next five years do have in store for you. Patrick, thank you so much, man. It was great to be on the show and, and uh, you're a fantastic host. I need to listen to more episodes. Hey, thank you for that, Marcus. And before we wrap up for good, do you have any final asks or requests for the audience? Anything else uh, to leave them with before we uh, finish? Yeah, it's simple. Um, you can visit me at marcuswhitney.com and, and sign up for my, uh, my weekly newsletter called Two Worlds. That's the easiest way to sort of keep in touch with me. Um, I write it myself every week and uh, I, I would love to have you uh, join me on the journey. Love it. Well, thank you again for coming on and, uh, and yeah, let's stay in touch, man. Wish you the best. Thank you so much, man. Sounds great. All right. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.